day. We got the signal back there, Judah. Good to go. All right, hey, well, uh, welcome. And uh, man, we just love a packed house. Um, I won't go through all the things that Dave shared in uh, in uh, announcement time, but I would encourage I would encourage you to look at that bulletin insert on the uh, the appreciation night here uh, coming up. So we look around at the different flags, and uh, <clears throat> we were talking earlier. There's a couple of flags probably missing in that, but uh, in that lineup. But there's some real um, beautiful pieces of history for our nation as. Uh, men and women saw fit to uh, to find freedom. I'm looking at this big one with the eagle over here. Um, to find freedom from tyranny. On a spiritual level, that's a lot of what's kind of uh, being talked about in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you haven't been here, we definitely welcome you. And, and uh, we've been studying through the book of 1 Corinthians, one of the Apostle Paul's uh, letters to a church there in Corinth. Right there in kind of southern Greece on an isthmus there. A little strip of land that uh, separated two seas. And, and we've been studying uh, through, and uh, early, early in the series, I put up this slide, kind of a two-column slide. And uh, for just a quick summary, the book of 1 Corinthians is kind of uh, uh, a long conversation sandwiched between two critical elements of the gospel account. First, he was concerned that they were forgetting about the crucifixion. And then the Apostle Paul writes for the majority of the first letter to the Corinthians about two categories. There was two categories of things that he touched on. There was things that were reported back to him that were going on there in that church that needed address, that needed some correction, issues of division and immorality, issues of brothers in the Lord taking one another to civil court, uh, issues of idolatry, uh, men and women issues, the Lord's Supper. And then there was issues that, where they had questions. They had questions uh, about marriage and divorce. They had questions about what do we, what do, we do with, uh, uh, in that day, there was, it was very common if you go to, you know, the local Super One in the first century, and you pick out a big old, you know, chunk of uh, beef roast, it was likely that that beef roast had been uh, sacrificed to some, some god, some idol of that day. And so the question remained for them, the question that they had is, what do, what do we do with this? What do, we, what do we do with these scenarios? What do we do when either our conscience is, is uh, bothered by it or perhaps somebody else's conscience is bothered by it? And then down later, and we're going to get into this in the coming weeks, issues of spiritual gifts. And that was all sandwiched between the crucifixion and then their struggle with, uh, with kind of doubting the resurrection, the clearest portrayal of the gospel uh, that Paul would give out in a single few sentences was, comes up here later in the book of 1 Corinthians. But we've made it here to chapter 10 so far. We're right towards the end of... Paul's encouragement and his instructions on meat that was sacrificed to idols. Uh, and it, I want to liken it this way, that um, I was asked, I f- totally forgot the name of this game. Uh, I'm not the person that would play this game for obvious reasons, but I was thinking about this game 
that kids used to play when we were growing up. And it's where you hold, you know, two people would hold like a pole or something and then somebody else would come underneath of it and you knock the pole out of their hand. What's that called? Limbo. And what was the little, what was the little song that everybody standing around waiting to take their turn would sing? How low can you go? How low can you go? And every time it come around, whoever was in the beginning, then it would drop the... Now you know why this was not my game, Tony. So <clears throat> I stuck to football, baseball, basketball, those sorts of things. But anyway, they would drop the pole, and then if you, you, know, if you fell or knocked the stick out of the person's hands, you were out, but the next person got that opportunity. And I think about the Corinthian church in this regard is their issue was not, their song might not have been how low can you go, but they were kind of playing the spiritual game of limbo. Instead of singing that, they would probably say, how close can you go? How close to sin can you go? How close to sin, say it with me, can you go? And what's interesting is, is people today, they might not sing that jingle, although maybe you will now because of me, no problem. But people have been singing that all through the ages. How, how close to sin can we go? Like, like where's the border? You know, where, where is it that we're going to get shocked by the spiritual electric fence? You know, what's, what's close enough or what's too far? How close can you go? And the Corinthians church really struggled with this. You see this really, that theme, that idea playing out throughout actually both 1st and 2nd Corinthians. But in regard to the current topic, in regard to this issues with idolatry, the Apostle Paul says, and we'll pick it up in 1st Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, he just simply makes a statement. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Why, why, why would, now, it, for obvious reasons, he would say flee from idolatry, but what was Paul getting at when he says flee from idolatry? Why does Paul command them, really? It's a command, therefore, flee from idolatry. It's not a suggestion. It's not a, hey, hey, church, <clears throat> here's a good idea, something you might want to think about, something you might want to consider. Just think about maybe walking away from idolatry. I, I don't know. You tell me. That wasn't how he said it. He said, therefore, my beloved, in, 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 in an endearing and straightforward way, he says, flee, flee from idolatry. It's really the second emphatic statement where he tells the Corinthian church to flee. If you remember back to our sermon in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul tells us there in 1 Corinthians 6, he tells the Corinthian church and, and also all believers, flee from sexual immorality. So it's the second of his flea statements in the book. This encouragement is just as relevant for us as it was in the first century. They were told to flee, but why? Why is it a, why is it a big issue? Why is idolatry then such a big issue that he would say, just turn and run? Pull a Joseph. Just get out of there. It doesn't matter if you leave your coat. Just get out of there. Why would he make such big statements about idolatry and sexual immorality? Because there's really kind of a common theme between the two, as we'll see here in a little bit. This common idea throughout this passage, let's pick it up together. Verse 15, he says, I speak as to wise men, kind of appealing to the Corinthians 
uh, assessment of themselves that they had all knowledge in the Greek culture and they were big on uh, what they knew or what they thought they knew. So he's a little tongue-in-cheek. He says, and I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless is not, is it not the cup of communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. We're going to be taking communion at the end of the service, so it's interesting that this passage comes up today. Paul says here in verse 18, observe Israel after the flesh. Now, if you remember back to last week's sermon, last week's sermon, the first uh, several verses in 1 Corinthians 10, he's, he's putting Israel and the history of Israel up on the, up on the map, so to speak, for the Corinthian church, saying, <clears throat> uh, if they could get it wrong, you could get it wrong. Don't get haughty in your estimation of where you are. He comes back to that theme here. He says, observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? Am I saying that an idol is anything? Or what is offered to an idol is anything? He's coming back to a point that he mentioned earlier in chapters 8 and 9 where he's saying really idols are nothing uh, in, in reality. And that food that's sacrificed to an idol, that roast beef, it's just a piece of meat. Like, it's, it's just a piece of meat. Rather, he says, though, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we not stronger than he Paul's just taken this whole issue of, of meat sacrificed to idols, innocent piece of beef, and, and, and the whole system that they had there in that first century in the Greco-Roman world of, of the whole sacrificial system, the whole worship system, all that goes with it, the fact that uh, outside of these temples where they sacrificed to these uh, demonic gods, there was also, it's like, well, we might as well utilize the meat. Let's set up a cafe. Let's set up, you know, uh, Dickie's Barbecue. And <laughs> let's eat. And the issue is not the meat. I'm giving you a little summary of the last couple chapters. The issue in and of itself is not the, 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 the substance. It's how the substance affects you and how the substance affects other people. Not digestively, but relationally. It's how other people are struggling because they, they've lived that whole system. They've, they've, they've embraced that whole system of life. Now they've stopped, they've repented, they've forsaken their sins, they're trusting Christ as their Savior, and they're trying to live a new life, and all of a sudden they have all this old life baggage is right there knocking on their door saying, Come on back, come on back. We miss you at the cafe. We miss you at the barbecue pit. And they're saying, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. Some common words in this passage. Look there in verse 16. Communion. Verse 17, the word partake. The plural of that in verse 18, partakers. 
In verse 18, verse 20, the word fellowship. Now, of those four words, three of them, three of them come from one Greek word. Verse communion in verse 16, partakers in verse 18, fellowship in verse 20, all come from the Greek word koinonia. Koinonia, the gathering. It's the community. It's the aspect of being together. It's the aspect of building relationships. So if you go back and look at those verses in that regard, take a look again. Are not those who, are, uh, who eat the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then, that an idol is anything, or what's offered to idols is anything? Rather, the table, the things which Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to have fellowship. I don't want you to be intimate, he's saying. I don't want you to build relationships in that regard. I don't want you to, to, to build koinonia, fellowship in those situations. It wasn't about the meat. It was all about the environment. It was all about what you're giving assent to, what you're, giving, what, you're, what you're committing yourselves to, what you're involving yourselves with. And these people were struggling with this issue over meat. We look at it and say, oh, that's kind of crazy. Really? We don't have these struggles? Other areas? Might not be about food for us. There's plenty of things in this culture that we struggle to separate ourselves from. That, we, that we're enticed to be drawn into, to fellowship with, to, to give ourselves to, to be a part of. Paul's saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's a whole aspect of this. Now on the one hand, throughout all the New Testament, we are called to that type of commitment. We're called to that type of commitment. And, and we're, if you think to yourself, we're kind of naturally drawn that way. Like there's very few people that are so introverted that they just don't like any, you know, social involvement at all. Very, very few people are out there that are that way. Most of us like some sort of interaction, if not a lot of interaction. Uh, we kind of, this place is designed for, for, for building fellowship. This place was an intended, this building was an intended uh, at its conception, that it would be a hub for the community, that it would build koinonia, that it would build uh, uh, relational aspects in this community and also and be used for God in, in that process. So there's a lot that we do that's on the upside. And throughout the New Testament, of course, we're called to and we're called to uphold and promote these relational ideals. Uh, and that's inside the body of Christ, inside the church. And from there, then, it's the idea of reaching out to those around us that aren't believers. That's kind of the, the natural call of the New Testament. The concern, the concern that the Apostle Paul has here is this. It's when we embrace the world system of worship, we embrace at some level the idolatry that comes with it. Do we get that? When we embrace at some level the idolatry, when we embrace the world system of worship, we embrace at some level the idolatry that comes with it. Uh, and his concern here, straightforwardly, is that that embrace is ultimately an embra embrace with the demonic, with the spiritual forces of darkness. And he's saying, hey, you, you, there has to be a spot where you say, no, it's time to leave that. 
it's time to flee. That's why the flee is so emphatic in verse 14, is because Paul is looking at the bigger picture and saying, whoa, this is really can go sideways for some people. This really can go sideways for some people uh, in their thinking, in their lives, in their worship, in what they put their hand to, and they can just be drawn back into that. Do they want to be drawn back into that? Do we want to be drawn back into some sort of uh, demonic, although the Bible's straightforward, the enemy comes as an angel of light, so a lot of these things in our culture look really good and appealing, as it did in their culture. Do we want to be drawn into that? He's saying absolutely not. Therefore, flee. Flee idolatry. Get away from it. That's the concern. In verse 20, he says, rather... Rather that the things which were the Gentiles sacrificed, they sacrificed to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Our modern worldview, uh, let's be honest about where it's been for the last 50, 60 years anyway. Our modern worldview has dumbed down the realities to the demonic spiritual realm. If you're a younger person, you may never have seen this transition go on. If you're older, if you're an older person, if you're a retiree or maybe my age and up a little bit, you might, you might, uh, you might pick up a few of those keys. What am I talking about? Uh, our modern worldview has really made the demonic uh, cartoonish in a lot of ways. It's kind of funny and cute. It's kind of the adorable Scooby-Doo sort of... Uh, you know, spiritual realities. If you're like me, grew up in the, in the 80s, and you get up every morning, you have, you have one shot all week to watch cartoons, and that's Saturday morning for about three hours if you didn't get kicked out of the house, which was a common occurrence at my place. So you've got to get up early on a Saturday morning. And if you want to watch Scooby-Doo, if you want to see, you know, the whole team overcome, you know, these ghosts and goblins and it was cute and it was funny and it was you know suspenseful and it was this and it was that and it's not exactly the portrayal of the reality of the demonic realm that really exists it's a funny spin-off it's a dumbing down it's a watering down to make it seem okay make it seem funny make it seem cute the demonic forces the demonic forces are real And they do have one singular goal. They have one singular goal, and that's this. To steal the hearts and minds of people. To make it funny and cute, it's kind of appealing. You know, it changes your view of the spiritual realm. Makes it seem kind of okay. Makes it seem kind of, you know, not so horrible. They have one goal, to steal the hearts and minds of humans. In Ephesians chapter 6, we read where the same Apostle Paul that wrote 1 Corinthians, he <clears throat> we see where he uh, notes down a need to be prepared in a sense for battle against this evil. He says in verse 10, finally my brethren be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Why would we need to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might if there wasn't some sort of a battle that was happening around us? He says in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, 
against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That doesn't really square with the Scooby-Doo view of (laughs) demonic forces, does it? These guys are out to get us. These guys are out to steal hearts and minds. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand. After that, the Apostle Paul goes into a whole dissertation about the various pieces of the armor of God that he mentions here and what their role is in our lives. Of course, the one being one offensive weapon, the sword. The caution that Paul brings out, though, in 1 Corinthians 10 is clear. Uh, And I'm going to summarize it this way. Don't get the teams mixed up. Don't get the teams mixed up. Thinking that it's all right to just, you know, dabble around in idolatry or, you know, that, 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 that somehow, you know, it's, it's all right. It's not, again, about the, the consumption of food. It's about the realities of what we put our hands to, what we put our hearts to, and what we put our minds to, what we, what, what we give ourselves to in that way and in that culture. There's a regular occurrence for people to go and to sacrifice to these demonic gods. Go and sacrifice. Most of the sacrificial system, of, as I'd mentioned in previous messages, was sexual in nature. So it was kind of this massive love feast where there was eating and drinking and carousing and sexual immorality. And the Apostle Paul says for the believers, hey, you've got to draw a line. You've got to draw a line in the sand. Don't get the teams mixed up. Don't think you can... Uh, dabble a little bit here at the table of the Lord and also with what's really the table of the demonic realm. Part of being prepared is knowing your enemy. Part of being prepared is knowing your enemy and their tactics, how they draw a person in, how they try to steal that heart and mind. In fact, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter both write about this in a number of different letters. It's kind of consistent with 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'll read just a couple of excerpts. One out of uh, the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 5, where it says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of of disobedience in which you <clears throat> yourselves once walked when you lived in them. First Peter 4 says this, he says, Peter says, For we have spent enough time of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. That's an interesting statement for a Jew. For we've spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. There's a common theme here that both these guys are writing about. Notice the tense of the writing. In verse 7 of Colossians 3, he says, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. So he's just writing it down by way of kind of a warning and a reminder. The Apostle, Paul, or the Apostle Peter kind of says the same thing. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of of the Gentiles. He's saying, hey, that's both of these guys are saying, hey, that lifestyle is behind us. 
that lifestyle, that implies that there was a point in time where these believers put a stake in the ground and said, I'm not living that way anymore. I'm not engaged in that anymore. I'm not thinking that way, and I'm not believing that way. The way that I used to believe, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm going a new direction. And their new direction, the Bible calls it repentance, their new direction was to say, all right, I'm going this way, now I'm stopping, confessing my sins, trusting Christ as my Savior, Savior and Lord, and in the Lord part, I'm following Him for the rest of my life in this direction. Wholeheartedly, 100%. 1 Corinthians, the end of chapter 10, is a lot about a warning and these other verses as well are a warning to not try to keep a foot in each camp. Don't get your teams mixed up. Peter's saying as if, and Paul are saying as if, uh, this is who we used to be, but it's not who we are now. Now our allegiance is with the king. We have this, which is core to our thinking today, because it was core to their thinking as well. We have a new identity in Jesus, and everything, everything, I have it in bold print, all caps in my notes, everything then about our lives is different. Not to get a new identity, but because you have a new identity in Christ, and this is what Paul's getting at with these Corinthian believers, you have a new identity in Christ, you don't have to dabble in your old life. You don't have to stress and strain about this issue of meat sacrificed to idols. Whatever the current scenario is in your life, the same principles are true. You don't have to stress and strain about that old life. We're called to believe in Christ. So then we receive a new identity in Him. And everything, everything then about our lives is filtered through His will. That's what a Christian is called to. Unfortunately, probably for many of us, that was not a part of the conversation when Jesus, when Jesus was shared with you. I'd almost guarantee it. It wasn't for me. It wasn't for me. And that's why the Christian life is often, oftentimes is really a, a, a struggle. Because we're called to a, a, a salvation, but nobody explains the new life in Christ that everything changes from there on out that that's what that means, that that's how it goes. It needs to be a part of our conversations when we're sharing with people. That everything about our lives is filtered through the will of Christ. There's nothing that we won't experience that's not addressed through the pages of Scripture. There's nothing that that uh, as we looked at last week, there's no sin that's not common to mankind. So you're not going to be put out, you new believer. If you're a new believer, you're not put out there on an island by God just to say, figure it out by yourself. No. What you're experiencing, whatever it is, and wherever you are in your walk with Christ, whatever you're experiencing is common to other people. Somebody. Might be somebody in this room. Might be the very person that shared Jesus with you. Might be somebody that is, uh, you know, looking to, to explain more about the Lord with you. But your experience is common to mankind. That's what we kind of looked at last week for the most part. But everything in that 
as you process through whatever situation you're in, and these guys were trying to figure out what to do with this delicious barbecue and whether it was good to eat or not, whether they should or shouldn't. A lot of times it boils down to the question is not uh, may I, but should I? That was really the question, if there was a question behind what the Apostle Paul was saying in these three chapters. It's not a matter of may I, it really comes down to a matter of should I, and then he talks about the different aspects of should they partake. There's one more passage I want to look at in regard to, in regard to the, uh, the spiritual battle that goes on. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18 says this, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Stop right there. Uh, 99% of people will quote that in regards to uh, marrying a non-believer, a Christian marrying a non-believer. That's, that's not the whole of the passage, and that's not all the passage is talking about. Not that it can't be applied to that, but apply it back to the issues that they were going through here in 1 Corinthians 10 as I read through. Think about those issues, matters of conscience and so forth. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship is righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Ah, here comes the idol issue. For you are the temple, for you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be your father, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. This issue of uh, being unequally yoked uh, really is an issue of this. It's, <clears throat> it means to not have a partnership that is contradictory. To not have a partnership that is contradictory, and of course that applies uh, in the issues of marrying a non-believer as well, but it goes far beyond that. And it goes clear back to these issues of should they or shouldn't they participate, should they or shouldn't they, build fellowship as they dine on meat sacrificed with idols. Now, there's, I term these five oil and water mixtures rhetorically because Paul asks these, same questions, these five questions in 2 Corinthians. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, another term for Satan? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Uh, he's putting out five rhetorical questions as to say, duh, um, which is not found on the pages of Scripture. But he's, he's making this rhetorical point. It's like, this is a no-brainer, right? When you kind of list these things out, when you kind of review these issues. No, he says, we need to be separate. We need to be distinct. And you are distinct, believers. You are distinct because you have God within you. God taking up residence within you in the form of the Holy Spirit. 
And so he says, I will put him in you. And if we want to take 1 Corinthians 10, 20, and 21, if we want to make our own question to go with these rhetorical questions out of 2 Corinthians 5, I wrote one down this way. Uh, how can you dine with demons and not get a little blood on your hands? <laughs> That's the question, really, that he's putting out in front of him in 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, is the meat bad? No, the meat's not bad. But how, how can you dine with those that are driven by the demonic realm? How can you participate in that and not get a little, you know, ketchup on your hands, not get a little blood on your own hands? That's the rhetorical question I think of when I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But back to 2 Corinthians 6, there's a clear call. There's a clear call for us to come out from among them and be separate. To be separate. And this is the Lord's command. And the questions that come to my mind are ones like this. Is what areas of our lives need to be sorted out in this way? What aspect of my life, what aspect, you can ask yourself the same question. What aspect of your life needs to be kind of be sorted out, needs to be separated out needs to be sifted through and extracted out of what the world has to offer everybody. But as a Christ follower, you're, you, you're, you're struggling both in your conscience and your spirit. I need to separate these things out. Maybe even the preceding question would be valid as well. Uh, do I have anything to sort out? Do I have anything that's, that's plaguing me? Do I have that thing that keeps drawing me back keeps whispering my name, keeps drawing me into fellowship when I know without a shadow of a doubt that that thing is from the world and worse yet is driven in the demonic realm. What are those things? You have to ask those questions yourself. I have to ask those questions for myself. What are those things? What are those areas of our life that needs to be kind of sorted out and separated out what areas of our life do we need to turn and flee from even though in some aspects it's not all bad but the fellowship with it leads us in the wrong direction or do we adhere to a modern equivalent of the corinthians motto what's the corinthians motto look at verse 23 back to first corinthians 10 Verse 23 in 1 Corinthians 10 says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not, <clears throat> uh, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Uh, now, Paul breaks this down, and he gives an answer to each time there's a uh, cultural motto that's being presented. He did the same thing in 1 Corinthians 6, if you recall addressing the issues of sexual purity, where the Corinthians, uh, the Corinthian church kind of had this motto, hey, it's, it's all okay. It's not against the law. So it's lawful. There's a lot of things in our day and age that are lawful that we probably shouldn't participate in. Right? A lot of things <laughs> that are lawful that my heart, my conscience, my spirit saying. I can't go there. I can't go there. You have to fill in those blanks for yourselves. What are some of those things that are lawful 
lawful. That was their cultural motto. Ah, it's, it's, it's okay. It's not against the law. That was true in 1 Corinthians 6 about sexual promiscuity. It's true, he says here in chapter 10, in regard to, you know, it's not against the law to eat this meat, to dine at these places, to partake in this kind of stuff. And It's not against the law. It's not against the law. No. But he has a rebuttal for each time it's stated. He states them and then rebuts them with these things. So he says this, all things are lawful. Uh, yeah, Paul's saying no, not all things are helpful. Not everything's helpful. The Corinthians would say all things are lawful for me, and Paul says, yeah, but not all things edify. Not all things build up. Not everything is good. Maybe okay, but is it good? Is it right? Is it holy? And then he tops it off here in verse 24 where he says uh, the real issues, the real issue is let no one seek his own but each one the other's well-being. So he takes the high road, he takes the Jesus road and says, hey, these things might be legal, but are they good? No. They might, they might not be against the law, but hey, they don't really build up the, the body. They don't really, they're not, they're not, you're not, if you do that, you're not really encouraging other people, especially weaker brothers that struggle in their conscience with these things. What are some of those things in our society in our world uh, there's many many for the sake of time i won't dive down that rabbit hole but there's a lot of things there's a lot of things the jesus answer for you sunday school graduates is what he says here in verse 24 uh, let no one seek his own in other words it's not all about you but let each one the other's well-being. But each one the other's well-being. Specifically in regard to food sacrifice to idols, your conscience might be okay, he says, but somebody else's conscience is going to get flipped upside down. And they're going to get flipped upside down. And where are they going to land? How are they going to be impacted? Let's not forget this whole thing is driven by demonic forces that are pulling those people in, pulling them in, and pulling them in. So your freedom, your freedom, my freedom, I'll speak to my freedom, my freedom, as I look around at a room full of flags, <laughs> my freedom can be taken to the excess to somebody else's detriment, and they're being driven into deeper and deeper fellowship, ultimately, in the spiritual realm. And where's that going to land? I don't know. But I can speak for me and say, I, I want to be really careful then. I want to be really careful. I don't want to be the person that makes a brother stumble, to use that phrase that pushes somebody over the edge. I don't want to be that type of person that drives somebody, you know, uh, with a flippant comment uh, deeper into an addiction issue. Or with a, it's okay to, to buy this or buy that and push somebody else into issues, uh, deeper issues of addiction, maybe with alcohol or drugs or whatever. 
We don't want to be that person. We would all sit here and say, absolutely, yeah, like I don't want to cause somebody else to have bigger issues. But that's not a decision for right here where you're sitting in a chair not saying anything or not doing anything. These are actions and issues that play out through the course of everyday life. Paul's final thoughts before we get to communion are these. He says, verse 25, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. In other words, he says, don't be a jerk when you go to buy a steak. Like, verse 26 says, For the earth is the Lord's and all the fullness, and all its fullness. In other words, God created everything. He created even that T-bone steak that was sacrificed, you know. Don't question it. But, he says then in verse 27, if any, one of those, <clears throat> if any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner, and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no questions for conscience sake. Again, kind of the same idea. One, you're buying. Two, you're dining together with friends. But, if anyone says to you, so, if the host spills the beans and says that this meat was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience, but I will partake with thanks? Why am I evil? Why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks. Essentially boils down to, don't make a fuss. But if the information is offered, then you probably have a responsibility to respond to it. Right? You probably have a responsibility to respond to it. But he says here in summary, therefore whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. When we're at this type of uh, crossroads trying to make a decision, and I would uh, venture to say uh, the meat sacrificed to idols I would venture to say 99.9% of us in this room would never face that actual situation unless maybe you're in an area of the world where there's still a lot of this type of, you know, sacrificial (laughs) system going on and idolatry and all of that. Uh, Well, that may be true. That doesn't leave us uh, off the hook in all areas. There's a lot of things that are out there, a lot of different areas where these dynamics play out where our involvement needs to kind of be you know we need to be a gracious receiver of you know somebody's hospitality but on the other hand if they say something and like it's clearly stated you know then it's then the conversation gets spicy regardless of where you find yourselves and in what scenario the apostle paul ends with these words I won't read them all, but essentially he says if you're at that type of crossroads trying to make that decision, perhaps you're unsure of which way to go and 
what to do, uh, I think we could simply ask ourselves these two questions. Uh, Will what I'm about to do, will it bring glory to God? Like, is it going to bring glory to God or not? Right? Is it going to promote the Lord? Is it going to promote what I believe? Is it going to promote Jesus in a way uh, that he's not defamed, that he's not taken away from, that he's not, you know, diminished in any capacity? Will what I'm about to do, will what I'm about to partake in, Will it glorify the Lord? The second one is, will it do this? Will it draw others closer to God? Will it draw others closer to God? Now, that is a uh, tricky question from this standpoint, that we don't always get to see the results of every decision that we make immediately. You know, so there might be, you might be in a situation where you need to say, no, you know what, I, I, I can't participate in that. You know, I'm not going to sit around the break room while you guys are, you know, looking at porn and, you know, laugh at all your dirty jokes. You know, which would be one of those scenarios that's akin to, you know, participating, having fellowship with, ultimately, <laughs> demonic forces. So I'm not going to participate in that. So you ask yourself the question, well, is this going to draw others closer to God? Probably not on the front end. You know, they're going to probably look at you and it's like, really? You know, what are you, some kind of prude? You know, you old-fashioned? Like, this is 2021, not 1821. Right? You, you might get those types of statements. You might get that type of feedback, that type of backlash for making the decision. You might not see on the front end or even in the long haul whether it draws others closer to God by you stepping away and saying no I'm not going to participate not going to participate but there might be that chance as well down the road after a uh, you know catastrophe at home and a lot of strain and struggle that just one of those guys might come to you down the road and say, why were you always different at work? What made you different? Why did you not participate in the thing? I, he, could, he could say to you, she could say to you, I, I remember this time, you know, clearly, and you just decided you're not going to go there. Why? Why, why, do, why is your demeanor, why is your makeup why is whatever about you is different about you, and why is it different than me and the rest of the guys that were doing this back then? And how do I get what you got? How do I get what you got? You might have that opportunity. It might come soon, it might come later. The question is not about frequency, it's not about time and space. But ultimately, and ultimately it's not really about us, whether we even get to participate in it. It's not what's best about me personally in that scenario, if it's me or if it's you. It's ultimately, 
It's about demonstrating Jesus in a world that is really corrupt. Ultimately, it's about giving him glory. And if you can't walk away from that, like, there's some deeper struggles, let's be honest. If, 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 if your confidence is so rattled by having to take that stand, you probably have some bigger challenges. I would encourage you to consider, I would con- con- encourage us all to consider the last phrase here in this chapter. Uh, it's not about what is best for my own profit, but he says it's about what profits many that they may be saved. In every passage that we've looked at, Paul's had continual pointers back to the gospel. Continual pointers back to uh, the fact that people uh, need to experience Christ's forgiveness. They need to experience his love and his peace and his mercy. That they need to experience uh, Jesus himself. And he points back to issues of the gospel, and that's just what he says here at the very end, that they might be saved. See, the goal is the goal is to see other people saved because that's what Jesus has done for us. Whatever we do or whatever we don't do, whatever scenario that comes to your mind or reality that comes to your mind, uh, that should be our motivation. That should be our aim. That should be our goal. And if it means taking some criticism in the process, uh, I think all of the apostles and the early believers would say, Welcome to the crowd. Part of the territory. Like we serve a crucified but risen Savior. We serve a, 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 we serve a wonderful God who came and took our punishment for sin. Horrific punishment for our sin. That we could be the last word in chapter 10. That we could be saved from the eternal punishment of that sin. That's not a cheap deal. And you making a decision of conscience, you making a decision not to participate, in a sense, is in a small way taking that same step. You might be kind of uh, get a little verbal criticism and crucifixion for it. And I think that the, you know, early believers would say, welcome to the crowd. I think that people around the earth would say, welcome to the crowd. Believers that have Standing firm for Christ. If there's not a stake in the ground at some point, how will people know what's being stood for? David, will you come on up? We're going to turn our attention to time of communion. If the worship team would come on up, David will come on up, and he'll. Lead us through this time of communion. We get to think about some of the very things that we talked about here today that the Apostle Paul lays out as a contrast, uh, a contrast of, of commitment, <laughs> a contrast. Uh, the Apostle Paul in chapter 10 was laying out this contrast of, you know, are we going to participate with the table of the Lord or the table of demons, so on and so forth. Well, we're going to participate this morning with the table of the Lord as we celebrate communion. David.